Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. It is Thursday, July 20th. I'm Scott Bland, your host, and you are listening to Politico's Nerdcast. I'm saying it every week, but once again, surprise, surprise, we have a packed show. A lot to talk about. The latest updates on health care. Senate Republicans are still trying to cobble together something that can attract 50 votes in the Senate so that they can move forward with their longtime campaign pledge of repealing Obamacare. But once again this week, uh, they fell short. Some key defections from conservative senators, from moderate senators. Dan Diamond uh, is joining us again to tell us how it all fell apart and what Senate Republicans are trying to do to cobble it back together. We're also going to talk about tax reform. This is another big, weighty policy issue that Republicans in the White House and Congress are eagerly tackling right now. And yet, talk to any observer and they'll tell you that however difficult health care has been, tax reform is going to be more difficult. We'll dig into that a little bit and tell you exactly why people are saying that. And we're going to talk about the interview that everyone's talking about today. Donald Trump sat down with the New York Times in the Oval Office on Wednesday and attacked his own attorney general, issued vague warnings at uh, special counsel Robert Mueller, uh, called former FBI director James Comey a liar, and much more. So we will talk about everything that happened there and Trump's freewheeling style and how it's affecting uh, Republicans in Washington. A couple things before we kick off. Remember, please email us at nerdcast at politico.com if you have any questions. And please subscribe, rate us, and write written reviews of the Nerdcast on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. We want your feedback so we can keep improving the show and expanding the audience. And one more thing, the Nerdcast is visiting Politicon on July 29th and taping a live show. The crew will be at the Pasadena Convention Center that Saturday, July 29th in front of a live audience. If you're there, please come hear us. If not, you'll be able to hear that episode in our regular podcast stream afterward. All right, let's start things off this week. We have, as usual, senior reporter Nancy Cook with us. Oh, thanks for having me. Senior politics editor Charlie Matessian. Hi, Scott. And uh, back for his second run on the Nerdcast, we have uh, Politico Pulse Check host and the author of Politico's healthcare newsletter, Dan Diamond. Senior nothing, except I've got a lot of gray in my beard after covering <laughs> healthcare <laughs> these past few months. As you should, as you should. Well, here's a healthcare data point to start us off. 54, that's how many times, according to a Washington Post analysis, that Republicans had voted in the House and Senate to repeal, change, or undo Obamacare by the spring of 2014, 54 times. And yet here we are this week, once again, with another version of the current Senate health care bill failing to garner enough support to move forward, uh, move forward even to a vote at this point, although Mitch McConnell is saying they are going to have a vote next week. Dan, what happened this week and what are you expecting to see going forward? Well, I think let's just start with the state of play, which is we are in the late stages of a ball game that, barring a miraculous turnaround, Republicans look like they're going to lose. They still don't have the votes to move the Obamacare replacement bill to the floor and Senator John McCain's absence for, for brain cancer. 
makes it exponentially harder to get there. And the idea of straight repeal of Obamacare is basically dead on arrival, even though, as you pointed out, Scott, there have been vote after vote to back that kind of bill. Largely, now that Republicans know if they push this through, it will happen. 32 million more people could be uninsured in a decade under projections. So that's why that's just not winning over the moderates that they need. This week was wild. Basically, everything happened, and and it wasn't supposed to. The Senate had said they were going to defer action this week. I don't know if everyone remembers that, but they weren't going to do health care at all. But then late Monday, a pair of senators, Mike Lee, Jerry Moran from Kansas, came out and said they couldn't back the bill. That triggered a cascade of events where first the Senate said, okay, we'll just move to straight repeal. And that is now on the table. But then the White House weighed in. President Trump said he wanted to get involved. And that's led to a flurry of last-minute attempts to revive a bill that really doesn't have the constituency and probably won't ever have it, given the ideological differences between members of the party. Mike Lee and Jerry Moran, the two senators that you just mentioned, uh, these are not—we've been talking a lot in, in past weeks about Medicaid and the opposition to this bill among some Republican moderates because of Medicaid coverage losses that that might hit their states. What, that's not where Lee and Moran were coming from on this. What was motivating their opposition? They are true believers that the government should not be involved in health care provision. And in my mind, it's a flip of the same battle we saw within the Democratic Party back in 2009 and 2010, folks who thought that the ACA didn't go far enough. They wanted it to be Medicare for all. They wanted to see a public option. And when those things failed, some Democrats turned their internal fire on what became the ACA. And and it's easy to see where they're coming from. Lee said that Republicans campaigned for years on ripping out Obamacare root and branch. And in this mind, if you're looking at it, to them, this is just like light weeding because it's going to keep so many parts of the ACA so much funding, and they don't want to have to defend that vote to the conservative base that brought them into office. And I think there's a political component here, too, that hasn't gotten a ton of scrutiny. And, And maybe this is just my own... Uh, cockamamie theory, but I think there's some truth to this. Those two, I think, took a bullet for their colleagues uh, because neither of them, both of them are up in 2022. So they have a long, as far away as many possible, right? years <laughs> ahead of them to live through this vote, for voters to forget this, for the base to forgive them for it. They can do lots of votes in between. Moran himself understands the political calculus as a former NRSC uh, chairman. So he understands the game. They, in many ways, by coming out publicly, and it was unexpected to, to lots of folks in lots of ways, by doing that, they saved every vulnerable Republican or every Republican who was going to have to take a, a tough vote, the undecideds who were going to be up in 2018 or 2020, all of those folks. And, and it's, it's not an insignificant number. You're talking about at least probably about seven people. They took the bullet for them so they didn't have to go public. And what was interesting, I thought, was that they did it at the same time and so that neither one had to be the person who was going to, you know, do the be the fourth oh, that uh, is a good point. defector. <laughs> and so nobody really had to take the blame for that. But I think it just also shows broadly how difficult healthcare is because, you know, Mitch McConnell is trying to appease uh, these conservatives likely like Moran with these more moderates like Portman and, and Susan Collins, who we've talked about before, who care more about these Medicaid cuts. And they want completely different things out of this bill. And it's just a very hard thing to come together and put together this package to do it. Ultimately, at the end of the day, when the House voted, when the 
certainly when the Senate voted, everyone got on board. When the House voted, almost everyone got on board, too. Is there some sense that eventually they're going to strike on something <laughs> that, that brings them all together? Or are the dynamics in the Senate just actually too, too different among Senate Republicans right now with this 52-seat majority as opposed to the huge majorities that Democrats had to work with in the House and Senate in, in, in 09 and 10? Well, I'll, I'll start with the, the political analysis and, and let Dan, who uh, marinates in this stuff uh, <laughs> and is the heavyweight on policy, handle, handle that part. From a political standpoint, there's a couple of big differences. In the Republican conference, I would venture to guess, in fact, I'd bet a lot of money, that there is not a single member of the Senate Republican conference that got into politics because they were interested in health care reform. It was just not part of their ideological makeup. It's not what drives them. It's not their vision. Uh, whereas you, ca- you couldn't say the same thing about the Democrats. There are some folks that care deeply about this and may have gotten into politics because of where they wanted to take uh, because of the inequities and because of other grievances they may have had with with our healthcare system. So there's that difference between the two. And then the other important difference that uh, that's often overlooked is the 52 versus 60 votes thing. Uh, 60 votes, which is what Harry Reid had back then, is a lot. I mean, it's only eight. It might sound like, oh, well, what's the difference? Eight senators doesn't really make a difference. It makes an enormous difference on a really sensitive issue like this. And McConnell just does has almost no room for error on the most volatile, combustible, sensitive issue. I, I would layer on what Charlie said about Republicans coming into office and dealing with health care reform. A lot of them got into office running against Obamacare and saying they would repeal it. It's just they don't have the policy depth or plans as a party to really come up with something other than what's already on the table. As you just got to, Scott, Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, was more of a compromise than some Republicans might admit. It already pulled from a number of conservative ideas, which meant now that the party's in power – and looking for some alternative to Obamacare, they don't have the same depth of ideas to pull from. And that's why the CBO keeps coming up with policy projections of major premium hikes or uninsured rates going up. So they don't have the same depth to pull from. I think I would make one other point about the the catnip now for these ideological conservatives. There are two bills being considered. That's part of what makes this so tricky. We've still got this now revived zombie bill, this replacement for the ACA that probably won't go anywhere given their as uh, Nancy just pointed out, there are four people on record opposing it and many more who are uncommitted. Then there's the straight repeal bill, which some of the people who don't want this compromise are desperate to pass. Rand Paul, Ron Johnson, uh, Jerry Moran, Mike Lee, like that's what they want. So the fact that there are now these two things out there is complicating efforts to consolidate around one idea. And just to go back even further, um, you know, Burgess Everett, who covers the Senate, and I had a story earlier Monday just tracing how we got here on health care. And one of the things that our reporting showed was that they didn't even know what they didn't know. And so Trump transition officials and, and people who became leaders in the administration, uh, coupled with the Republican congressional leaders, really thought that health care would be an easy thing. They would have it done by President's Day. One Republican aide described it to me as low-hanging fruit on the legislative <laughs> agenda. Wait a minute. Health care reform is yes, low-hanging fruit. Yes. They thought nice. it was going to be like no problem. And so part of this has also been that as it's come off the rails, even going back to January when lawmakers started to raise concerns about about repealing and, you know, they said, we're not going to repeal it. We have to repeal and replace at the same time. And then other members at a retreat in late January raised concerns about, you know, privately with the administration about some of these other things that came up uh, about Medicaid or is it conservative enough? 
uh, these policy concerns, they still didn't pay heed. And so there have been these red flags all along. But because Republicans, as Charlie and Dan have said, do not have this health care expertise and it's never been a real animated issue for them, they didn't see it coming. And this is why we're here today. And they also hadn't made the outreach and the, the groundwork with the industry to talk through things like what happens if we insert this provision. And as a result, the industry keeps getting surprised by changes that Republicans are making. And it's another reason why the opposition of the bill is so strong. They're pushing back with ads, lobbying, what have you, and writing letters like this attack on Ted Cruz's plan saying it's simply unworkable. And no one consulted the insurance industry because if they had... Republicans wouldn't have put that idea forward. And let's talk about the, the president's role here. I mean, he was the single greatest saboteur imaginable <laughs> uh, when, you, when you look at how things played out if, on, on, on every level in his uh, legislative interactions with senators. Uh, think about what he did. He has, you know, pretty much given a middle finger to the two most vulnerable Republican senators who have a very tough vote in front of them, who had a tough vote in front of them, Jeff Flake and Dean Heller. Then he went and almost in, in some ways humiliated Heller in front of the cameras at the meeting at the White House the other day, threatened him. This was the one we were worried about. You weren't there, but you're going to be. You're going to be. Look, he wants to remain a senator, doesn't he? Okay. And I think the people of your state, which I know very well, I think they're going to appreciate what you hopefully will do. I mean, this, this is the kind of stuff that never, ever would have floated. Who, who has the gumption to take on a United States senator like that, but also one whose vote he needed? As dumb as some of the members of the Senate are, like they all have pretty good <laughs> instincts when it comes to, to uh, politics. And they understand that this is a man who does not have a command of the details. And you know how you know this. It's not just the reporting. It's the fact that Trump himself said in that New York Times interview, if you read the transcript, it's, it's wonderful. You should read it all, all the way through. Oh, we're, we're but, going to explore this transcript yeah. in great depth in a few in a line, few segments. How about the line where he talks about? I know uh, people were really surprised at how much I knew about the health care reform bill. I know a lot about uh, health care reform. That is the giveaway that he knows very little about it because you don't have to say it if you know it. And so all I, of actually, these that's songs, not that's not how Dan intros his podcast every week. That's a, <laughs> no, I, I, I mean, think he was just quoting me. <laughs> to be fair, Dan, what what's going to happen next? Like we we we've been talking about health care on a lot of a lot of Thursdays, and it seems like thir- there's also been a lot of stuff developing on like Thursday afternoons about this. But what what are you expecting to happen next as we go down this road? We've seen a report in the last 24 hours about a ton more Medicaid spending making its way into the Republican bill to try and get some of those moderates on board. Uh, what else is floating around out there as possible solutions to try and cobble together 50 votes? Well, the Medicaid spending that could be introduced to win over moderates has uh, inverse, and it would continue to drive away all those conservatives that they still need to who want to see deficit spending uh, reduced, and, and they also want to see the Medicaid program cut back. So if McConnell does offer that money, as expected, that that may not get him there. Maybe it will win over Collins and, and uh, Murkowski in Alaska, but you've still got Rand Paul and Mike Lee. And at this point, with John McCain out, two votes, no, kills this bill. What we are expecting right now is a CBO report. And by the time listeners are hearing this, it will be out. But by every reasonable expectation, it will again show massive coverage losses and some savings that, again, McConnell can play around with and know how much he has to play with. But we're looking right now at a vote scheduled on Monday. And the vote would be to move forward on the straight repeal of Obamacare. And if that fails, maybe they will have this revised bill together as a fallback. But 
it doesn't appear that they've got the votes. And I don't know how they get there, barring either ideological conservatives walking back from everything they've said for years or enough money being thrown that somehow it brings over the moderates without and striking enough of a balance that the conservatives stay to. All right. Well, we will we will see what happens. We, I, I'm just struck by the like two things you just said. First of all, just how different like Washington now is than it used to be that there you can't solve problems like this by throwing enough money at enough different areas anymore, uh, which used to be kind of the way that these legislative deals got cobbled together. Well, one one thing with that is just there's so much attention now on every single one of these deals. And I've talked to lobbyists who have warned senators, if you are taking a package like Ben Nelson took in 2010 to vote through Obamacare, that will follow you throughout your career. People will use that against you. So be careful. And for all of these senators, even if they're taking $200 billion more in Medicaid funding, that sounds like a big number, but then it gets spread out across the states, and it's still going to be a pretty big cut from where we are today. So they'd be taking half a loaf for a bill that really nobody wants to defend at the end of the day, and it would be surprising to see it move forward next week. All right. We will continue uh, tracking about that. We, we may end up talking about this once again next week. Dan, thank you again for joining us and uh, providing your wisdom. Thank you, everyone. Let's take a quick break to hear from a Nerdcast sponsor. All right. Well, let's move from one intractable legislative problem to another. Uh, our second segment is about tax reform, and our data point is 15%. And that is the corporate tax rate that President Trump is reportedly seeking as part of a uh, broad sweeping tax reform, uh, one that for all the difficulties that Republicans have had shaping a health care package, observers are saying tax legislation will be even trickier. So, Nancy, start us off here. I feel like every time we talk in the office, I want to talk about office gossip or whatever, and you're just like, let's talk about tax reform. That's, so, that's, that's, not, that's not, not accurate. That's so, not true. T- tell us. <laughs> Always what's... itching to talk about tax reform. What, I'm what's... here, by the way. <laughs> thanks, thanks for the warm welcome. Scott. Oh, well, and we're welcoming Eliana in. Eliana Johnson, national Eliana political who? reporter. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Nancy, what's the state of play? So basically what happened uh, when it looked like healthcare was going to fail, although healthcare has sort of come back, is that the White House quickly pivoted to tax reform. And, you know, the president started talking about tax reform on Monday and Sean Spicer was talking about it in the briefing. And it sort of became this like new shiny object um, and thing for the Republicans and the Trump White House to pin their great legislative hopes on. Um, and, and actually behind the scenes, the Treasury Secretary and Gary Cohen, the head of the NEC, along with some top um, Republicans uh, in both leadership and then the tax writing committees, have actually been meeting since the spring to kind of hammer out their differences on taxes. Um, I would say that, you know, they're super optimistic about taxes because Republicans feel more comfortable with that policy area than they do with health care. They have a lot of ideas about it. Uh, They feel strongly about simplifying the tax code and cutting the rates. Um, But, you know, tax policy is quite complicated, and the president himself seems very animated by the idea of cutting tax rates um, and has promised to cut the corporate tax rate to 15 percent, which even wonky people in his administration have raised some concerns about. So I think there is a hope that tax reform will be way easier than health care, and I'm not sure that that will exactly pan out to be the case. Can can you explain that just a little bit more? I mean, I, sure. it's it's this thing that's just said over and over. But it, it that that however difficult healthcare has been, that that tax reform is going to be harder. Is that because the just the financial stakes are higher? There are more players and powerful industries involved. What what are the kind of specific moving pieces that 
are just so difficult to navigate about this. And for that reason, there hasn't been a tax reform bill in much longer than there's, it's been since the last health care reform bill. Yeah, the last big tax reform was in 1986 under President Reagan. And part of the problem or the complexity of tax reform is that you know everybody wants to cut the rates, cut the tax rates. And so to do that, you either uh, you add to the deficit um, or you end up having to cut these provisions that either businesses or individuals like. And they're always popular and there's always some constituency. So, for instance, uh, a big fight right now is whether or not you should stop allowing businesses to deduct interest. And that's a big thing that people who, uh, you know, real estate people, for instance, and financiers really like because that's business that runs on debt. Or another huge tax break for individuals is the mortgage interest deduction. Like nobody's going to get rid of that. The American dream was like built on this idea of home ownership. But my point is, is that for each of these little tax goodies, there's a bunch of people that will be upset and threatened uh, both businesses, individuals, interest groups that will make a lot of noise if you try to get rid of their particular goodie. But um, in order to do tax reform through the budget process called reconciliation, which allows the Republicans to do it with fewer votes, you ha- you can't add to the deficit. And so you can't just give people you know, a huge rate cut. You have to th- figure out a way to pay for it. And that's where it becomes very complex. Not adding to the deficit basically means it has to bring in more money. And at that point, you're creating winners and losers. Exactly. Exactly. And you could do, you know, some outside advisors to the president that I've talked to this week have said, well, you could do it through reconciliation and just make the tax cuts temporary. And there is some chatter downtown that that would be one way to do it, just to do these temporary tax cuts to give President Trump a big win ahead of the uh, 2018 midterm, since it seems like health care might not go the way that he wants it to. But there is just a ton of pressure now on tax reform to be the legislative accomplishment. But can I throw, splash some water on the idea that this the, of the big win for the White House for, for 2018? I know that's the talk and that's what the White House is looking for, they're aiming for in the, in the wake of uh, the health care uh, bill collapse. But I guess I just don't understand what is the big payoff in 2018? How does even assuming you get it done, how does that gin up the base in 2018? How do you get the turnout you you need? I mean, it, it, it gins up excitement in one aspect of the base, but I don't think it turns out people. It it turned it would have turned out the old Republican Party, not the new Donald Trump populist Republican Party. It just doesn't speak to them the way it would have spoken to their old constituencies. And so I wonder, you know, because nothing's going to happen next year. I mean, that's silly season. So if this is their big accomplishment, you're taking that to the Republican base in 2018. To me, I don't know. I, I don't see how that excites them. I think it I think Trump believes this in a broader way, which is that he came he campaigned on being more effective than the lawmakers currently in Washington and on an ability to get things done. And as we've seen with healthcare, he doesn't really care what the content as much with about the content of those things as about the uh, the ceremony and the act of accomplishment. And so I, I think if he if gets tax reformed, the reason they care about tax reform is merely the act of of getting it done in, in the White House. Um, but I, I would add that there are things that the that Republicans have to do before tax reform. So I think it's a little bit premature to talk about tax reform. They have to pass a budget. They can't 
uh, they simply can't do tax reform be, um, before they pass the budget, and they have to tackle the debt ceiling. And um, both of those, I think, are harder than they sound. Right now, the uh, the budget is mired in the House, and conservatives are feuding with moderates about what sort of budget will move forward. And the debt ceiling, I think, is going to p- be politically fraught for Republicans who, uh, who don't want to pass it clean um, and without um, any – without getting anything in return for increasing the debt ceiling. So there there are major things that um, that Republicans are going to have to tackle before they they move on to fighting about tax reform. I mean, the, the upshot of all this is that after all the division on health care, the, the way Republicans are talking about tax reform as this exciting topic for the party to rally around does not seem to to reflect in the in the reality of the situation. That's yeah, a very you know, messy... Paul Ryan likes to say tax reform is incredibly hard, which is why it, it hasn't been done in three decades. And so I, I do – and I also think that there's, there's um, more agreement. There's actually, believe it or not, more agreement within the party about what health care should look like than what tax reform should look like. And it's, it's particularly about whether it should be revenue neutral mm-hmm. or whether, um, whether increasing the deficit over the short term is tolerable. And I think the president himself is just really much more engaged on tax policy and finds it much more interesting. And Gary Cohen, the head of the NEC, and at least talking about it. Yeah, they like talking about it. But I think that they think because they're businessmen that they and they made money that they understand tax policy. But there is a difference, right? Like the there's the a huge difference. Cohen and, and Steve Mnuchin are deeply involved in this stuff, but they have not. They are, they are not tax policy experts, right? They have not been deeply involved in this sort of thing before. That's accurate. And they and they don't necessarily uh, – Gary Cohen has one tax staffer at the NEC, Shahira Knight, who really knows what's going on and was a lobbyist and worked on the Hill for a bunch of years on the Ways and Means Committee. So she knows what's going on. But um, at the Treasury Department, the ranks of political people who understand tax policy is basically nil. It's very thin. and uh, And so you have – basically one person in the administration who's like a real tax expert helping them figure this out. I want to jump back to something Charlie said before about just what what exactly is the political upshot uh, of this. Uh, Bloomberg recently conducted a poll asking Americans what they saw as the most important issue facing the country. Health care, 35 percent. And then everything else was below 15 percent. But uh, taxes came in at number one, two, three, four, five, seven uh, at four percent, tied with other. And how was it asked? Was it corporate tax reform or just taxes? <laughs> uh, I think it's just what's the most important issue, just taxes. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's not uh, it's not something at the forefront of, of people's minds, certainly right now, maybe when next April rolls around, but uh, uh, not not generally. I think administration officials and also, uh, you know, some outside economic advisors of the president think that you know, tax reform is kind of like a supply side geek country club Republican issue. However, I think they're betting that if there is a tax cut and every American sees like a little bit more money in their paycheck, that they will not necessarily understand all the machinations of what went into that, but they'll feel better about their own financial and economic situation. And that in turn will make them feel warmer towards Trump. That's the bet that they're making. And I could see that argument, but I, I look at it this way. What, what are the most, the, what were the strongest 
Trump states or where are the places that he has the most traction right now? You'd probably say what, uh, what whatever constitutes Jacksonian America, you know, uh, Appalachia, you know, the everywhere where Democratic senators are up for election. Yeah, yeah. I mean, year. but think about it this way. Is corporate tax reform going to uh, resonate in West Virginia? Is it going to excite the people of uh, eastern Tennessee? Is it going to excite uh, Oklahoma outside maybe uh, oil, and, uh, oil and gas and energy execs? You know, probably not. That That's the way I look at it. Like, and, you know, I just don't see how you get excited by that to turn out in 2018 when Democrats are going to bring everything and be well-funded. But that's why I think the White House is so sensitive about if they're going to do anything on taxes, doing it on both the corporate and individual side, because otherwise they're going to back themselves into the same corner that they did in healthcare, where it looked like you were, for instance, scrapping these Obamacare taxes on the rich and meanwhile cutting Medicaid. And I feel like this time they're more cognizant, although Trump has really talked about the 15 percent rate, which is a corporate rate. There's an understanding that if you do that, you can't just give corporations a big tax cut. You're going to have to give it to people, too. All right. This will be the next big policy fight. Tax reform. No bill yet. Uh, we're still hung up on health care, as we talked about in the first uh, segment. But wheels are turning and we'll, we'll be tracking what happens on that. Uh, let's now take a quick break to hear from a Nerdcast sponsor. OK, we alluded to it before. Uh, for our third segment, we're going to be talking about the uh, data point 48. That's the number of interviews that President Trump has conducted with the much maligned news media since he was inaugurated. And the most recent one was a doozy. We are talking about the New York Times uh, interview that published last night. Reporters Maggie Haberman, Michael Schmidt, and Peter Baker sat down in the Oval Office with President Trump. And they talked about everything from health care to the Russia investigation to some apparent ill feelings that uh, the president is feeling toward his attorney general, Jeff Sessions, right now, who's only his oldest and staunchest supporter among Washington Republicans. So, Charlie, I mean, there's so much to jump in here. Take us away. What do you think about this? What stood out to you? Well, uh, above all, it made me wonder how Sessions can remain in office after the president has uh, essentially given him a public no-confidence vote. I mean, I know at a press conference today he said he wasn't going to resign. But how do you keep your job after getting thrown under the bus by the president. And what specifically did, did Trump say about him? It's well, like, I mean, it's very clear right now. You're listening now. to Nerdcast. I hope you already know what Trump said about <laughs> Sessions, all you nerds. Yeah. If you're listening to Nerdcast, you need to read that entire transcript. <laughs> uh, I mean, don't just rely on the stories. Read the entire transcript. It's, it's utterly fascinating. But what's really interesting there is that we see a portrait of a president who sees the world very differently uh, than many other people. I think many other people, it, both in his party and certainly his enemies, all see the firing of James Comey as the wellspring of all of his Russia troubles, aside from anything else he did in terms of the handling uh, of things. Most people peg it to the Comey firing as sort of the accelerant. Trump, on the other hand, sees things very differently. He sees the wellspring of all his Russia troubles as Sessions's recusal uh, from the situation. And that, I thought, was really uh, rather fascinating. I, I also thought it was really interesting and revealing that he chose to do that interview with The New York Times. I mean, he sits there and spends so much time obsessing over the fake news of The New York Times, uh, dismissing The New York Times, uh, excoriating the, the New York Times. Yet, what does he do when he gives a sit-down interview? 
he gives it to uh, the Times. And uh, to the Times' credit, they did a, a very interesting story on it. Uh, I thought they did a great job of presenting it in lots of ways for readers so you could uh, listen to the audio of it and also providing the transcript, which was uh, essential. They asked lots of different questions, uh, I thought. And so, you know, all in all, I, I, it was a, a terrific package, both in terms of the way it was presented to readers, uh, what it revealed about the president, but also what it revealed about the inner workings of the White House. I mean, as, as we were talking about earlier, and as all of official Washington is talking about, sort of the optics of it and how it all went down, because uh, how it went down is just as interesting as what they talked about. It is revealing that Hope Hicks was the only staffer in the room. It is revealing that we're beginning to learn through different reports that uh, some of his staffers were sort of blindsided by this. So all by of the fact that, that he was going to be making news that day, he was go- but <laughs> just even, even the fact he, he was talking to them. Exactly. I mean, there's a reason it was only Hope Hicks staffing him in that room, and so all of that I think contributed. We have Charlie say who Hope Hicks is for the nerds. Oh yeah, everybody knows who Hope Hicks. Well, <laughs> I'm okay. kidding. I'm kidding. No, I, I guess you know. I think you're right. I mean, pe- uh, many people will not know who Hope Hicks is because she's among the least profile of the Trumps. Uh, the Trump administration communicators, but she's been with him from the start, keeps a very low profile in the back. I don't even know. What is her formal title? Strategic Communications Director, Director of Strategic Communications. Yeah. So, I mean, she's not a big inside player, but she's been, but she has the trust of the president. And uh, in any case, all of that, I think, sends signals to those of us that pay really close attention and have nothing better to do with our lives. It sends it... a signal about how the administration operates and how this president and uh, administration operates behind the scenes. It's, it's revealing the way that whole thing went down. Nancy, I'm curious what you think about the the Sessions comment in particular, about how he said he would never have picked Sessions to be his attorney general if he knew he was going to recuse himself from the Russia investigation. Sessions endorsed him very early on. Um, and there has been a lot of talk since the administration got up and running about the enormous influence that Sessions and former aides to Sessions had within kind of shaping the administration's policy on any number of levels. Is is this part of a, you know, waning of influence of of Sessions and and those staffers in other areas in addition to just his Justice Department portfolio? I don't think so. I don't think it's necessarily trickled down to the other uh, former Sessions staffers because I think that they um, have established themselves as sort of separate from Sessions at this point. So Stephen Miller, who's a senior policy advisor um, and who you know writes a lot of speeches for Trump, but is also involved in a ton of policy decisions. You know he's still in the West Wing doing his thing. And then Rick Dearborn is another former Sessions staffer who's also in there. He took some flack from the uh, some of the hiccups with health care, particularly in the House. Um, but you know he's still there and, and doing his thing and in a lot of. Uh, you know, closed door key meetings. Um, so I think it's mostly just Sessions that has taken the hit. And it is interesting because Sessions supported him so early at that Mobile, Alabama rally. He was one of the first senators to really come out and support Trump. And they had such a mind meld on a lot of, you know, criminal justice issues and the border and how to deal with immigration. Um, and, you know, Sessions really seems to be ramping up at DOJ and potentially doing quite a lot of things there. And so it's just interesting that, you um, you know, out of all of this, Trump is sort of holding on to this recusal. I think because Trump just doesn't like signs of weakness um, and likes his people to sort of be loyal. And, and he views this as both a sign of weakness and a sign that Sessions can't just totally serve him in all ways. And a concession to 
uh, some of his ideological enemies. But I also think that Sessions is not a strong man in the way that um, a, a Jim Mattis at the Defense Department is, in the way that a Rex Tillerson at State is, and in the way that an H.R. McMaster at the National Security Council is. He wasn't in the military, and he's not rich. Trump likes military guys, and he loves rich people. And Sessions is neither of those things, and I think that contributes uh, a lot to the way that this president uh, sizes people up and to the respect that he accords them. I don't even well, think he understands the genus or species, like the, the courtly southern gentleman politician. Like that's just uh, – you know, it's not part of the circle or uh, of, of his familiarity. Well, in Sessions, even when he was a senator, you know, he was chair of the budget committee at one point, but he wasn't in leadership. He wasn't someone that people took incredibly seriously. You know, he was sort of off on his own writing a lot of uh, screeds on illegal immigration and legal immigration and the problems of that. And I feel like he was well-liked by his colleagues, but he wasn't necessarily viewed as a huge legislative giant or leader in any way. And he was able to leapfrog to a very prominent job in the Trump administration, I think, because of that early loyalty. Meanwhile, um, the, we've got another another week, right? We've got Made in America week uh, this this week that the Trump administration is pushing, kind of going by the wayside as, as Trump uh, performs on his own stage, you know, completely separate from from what the party and uh, congressional Republicans and a lot of his own staff are trying to get accomplished this week. Uh, how many times is is that at this point? It's not, it's not just this. It's the the stories about this um, previously undisclosed meeting he had with Vladimir Putin on the sidelines of the G20, which was totally odd. Um, and another modification to healthcare not working out, as we as we talked about this week. It's the the once again, uh, at the risk of getting repetitive, uh, kind of unable to get out of get out of his own way uh, on on some of the stuff that he ostensibly says that he wants to get done. Well, I think there are two things. the The president is who he is. He's not changing. That's almost become uh, you know hackneyed thing to say at this point. And the White House is operating the way it's going to operate. That's not changing. So lawmakers, and you've seen some of them start to say this, are ignoring um, the executive branch and trying to move forward uh, with, without it and see what they can accomplish in the House and the Senate while completely ignoring the White House and what the White House is doing. At the same time, I think they're beginning to realize with this Senate health care failure in particular, that it's very difficult to accomplish things without the White House. It's much difficult to cobble together a majority without the uh, president using his megaphone or um, putting pressure on rogue lawmakers to get in line. And also without the president having an agenda of his own and pushing that forward in Congress. So, um, you know, I think Congress is conducting an experiment in to what extent it can drive an agenda without the power of uh, the executive branch and realizing uh, that there are real limitations to that. There are a couple quotes in a Politico story that published uh, this morning that I just want to read right here. For, uh, one from Congressman Steve Womack of Arkansas. Says, We're in some quicksand right now. But then Congressman Mike Simpson of Idaho jumps in and says, this is the direct quote. I don't even pay attention to what's going on with the administration because I don't care. They're a distraction. The family is a distraction. The president is a distraction. At first it was, well, yeah, this is the guy we elected. He'll learn. He'll learn. And you just don't see that happening. That's that's not a not not a great vote of confidence from, uh, you know, a, a backbencher in good standing uh, with, in, in the party. 
Well, just back to Eliana's point about um, sort of the accomplishments. You know, the White House this morning, I, I think that there's a lot of sensitivity to the six-month legislative mark and what they've accomplished. And the White House this morning sent out their big list of accomplishments. And one of them was this Buy America, Hire America thing. But the first thing that they listed out of everything was Neil Gorsuch, the Supreme Court justice. And that is a huge victory that will have very long-lasting, um, you know, huge just very wide-reaching, long-lasting effects on the judicial system. But, uh, you know, it's just interesting because we've talked about this before. Trump was not that involved in picking Gorsuch. Uh, you know, Leonard Lee of the Federalist Society, Don McGahn, the White House's top attorney, did those initial – put those initial lists together, did the interviews. Trump signed off on it. But it wasn't even something that he himself spearheaded. And I'm glad you, you picked out the Simpson quote because that just jumped off the page when I read that in the story. And, and I think it's an important quote, uh, the idea that Congressman Simpson said that because Simpson to me is something like an indicator species of a congressman. He is an Idaho congressman, kind of an establishment conservative uh, who's often had trouble on his right, you know, uh, and back home in Idaho. And, you know, was uh, I believe it was close to Boehner, right? And I believe so, so, yeah. So either way, for Simpson to say that for a Trump state you know, relatively conservative congressman to say that is unique and interesting and signals, I think, that the frustration is now beginning to in, to enter the bloodstream of the party in a way that we hadn't seen before. You see it's, that as a warning light. I do because you always have to think about when you see criticism of Trump within the Republican Party, you have to think about who's saying it. Is it a blue state? Republican, because I, I tend to dismiss that because it's often in their political interest to do that. They need to get distance from the president. But when you see the people in stronger Trump states uh, going off on Clinton and or, I'm sorry, on, on Trump, you begin to see that the frustration is seeping in. And now, I mean, you could drill down even deeper into the, the Simpson psyche for why he would say something uh, about that, because there would be in his district probably pockets of resistance to Trump among, uh, for example, the Mormons of Idaho. But still, you know, I think when you balance uh, everything, for him to say that, I think, really tells you something about how uh, the the mainstream conservative thinking is beginning to, I wouldn't say evolve, but I think sort of inch away from the president because of their frustration over the constant uh, scandal of the day uh, MO of this White House. One One other thing that I just think is interesting that I think maybe because of Trump's personality doesn't get as much attention. But in addition to the Supreme Court nomination, the the White House has also had a great deal of success rolling back regulations that were put in place during the Obama administration. But it's always, and I think part of it is just the way the way that accomplishment is covered in Washington. That big legislation uh, matters more than the sum of all these incremental regulatory moves. But um, it seems to me that one of the other side effects of what you were just talking about, Charlie, is that stuff like this. It's harder for stuff like this to gain traction. The fact that the, there is some of this behind the scenes winning going on. Well, uh, and the Office of Management and Budget just today released this unified agenda, which is basically lays out, you know, all the regulations that they're not they don't want to continue that they want to target. And it's something the presidents release, you know, I think twice a year. But um uh, yeah, I think the regulatory rollback has been huge. And, and if they follow through on it and also survive all the legal challenges, particularly on the environmental ones, that will be a huge legacy for the president. It will be a huge legacy, as will the as will the thousands of words of, of transcribed interviews that he's leaving behind in the New York Times archives seemingly weekly. 
that does it for us this week. Thank you, Eliana, for joining us. Thanks, Scott. Thank you, Charlie. Thanks, Scott. Thank you, Nancy. Oh, thank you. And as always, a big thank you to our listeners. Remember, email us with any questions you have at nerdcast at politico.com. Please also subscribe, rate us, and write written reviews of the Nerdcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And remember, the Nerdcast is taping a live episode from the road at the end of the month. Uh, The gang is going to be at the Pasadena Convention Center on Saturday, July 29th. I, unfortunately, will not be able to make it. I'm awaiting the birth of my first child, which is very exciting. Uh, So I'm going to be missing out. But uh, Dan is going to be there. Charlie's going to be there. Nancy's going to be there. And if you live near Pasadena or just want to become a Nerdcast roadie, mark your calendar. You can uh, hear them there. And we will have that episode appearing in the regular podcast stream as well so once again thank you to our listeners a big thank you to our executive producer Bridget Mulcahy, producer Rachel Cusick illustrator Bill Cookman and Nerdcast researcher Zach Montalaro we will talk to you again next week please stay tuned to hear about one of Politico's other podcasts